theories going on right now, and one of them is that I, as the administrative pastor, orchestrated the Sunday to preach being the first Sunday when childcare was offered. And uh, I promise you that's not the case. It's just in God's providence, that's the way it worked out. So thankful for those serving in childcare. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 98. Psalm 98. In 2014, the pastoral staff, we went to Nashville, Tennessee uh, to go to a convention that was hosted by our own denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, and it was called Homosexuality and the Future of Marriage. Now, just to put that in its historical context, this is 2014 and 2015, SCOTUS handed down the decision that legalized same-sex marriage. So it was, needless to say, a, a very important conversation taking place at that time in the lives of churches and Christians. But the conference was like many conferences, probably a thousand people in attendance. There are plenary talks and then there are panel discussions and there's a lot of singing. Christians, that's what we do when we get together is we, we sing God's praises and there's a lot of singing. Whenever our denomination has its annual meeting or a large conference like this on an important topic, there's often a press section there. And on this particular topic, when you have people of all different persuasions on it, then um, there are people of all different media outlets there to report on what our denomination is saying about these things. And there was one reporter writing for an LGBTQ media outlet, and he tweeted a lot, a lot of disagreement with things that were said, not surprising. At times, he tweeted a lot of disdain uh, for things that was said, but I'll never forget that at one moment, just rather randomly and unexpectedly, he tweeted something like this. He said, I don't believe anything that they teach, but wow, their singing is pretty amazing. Now, there was nothing I perceived uniquely special about this singing. This is just what Christians do. Uh, the room was full. People were full singing their hearts out to the Lord. We weren't singing about marriage. We weren't singing about sexuality. We were singing about the gospel. Uh, Matt Boswell was leading us and uh, we sing some of his songs and that was the first time I was introduced to him. I don't remember much that was said at that conference, but I remember that guy's tweet. It just stood out to me. And, and the question that it placed in my mind was, what does his community lack that's, that made our singing stand out to him? I mean, I presume that he and other people within the LGBTQ community love music, love singing, and it's part of their lives. But why was our singing as Christians something that he was so taken aback with that made him publicly make his sentiments known that he was amazed by a room full of Christians singing their hearts out? The answer is pretty simple. We have a Savior to sing to, and he doesn't. The one to whom we sing and the one for whom we sing is greater than anything else that we can sing about in this world. And so what he was observing was a room full of Christians with thankfulness in their hearts for the undeserved love of God shown to them in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he looked at it and said, that's a pretty remarkable thing. I may not fully understand it, but I see what they're doing, and that's a pretty remarkable thing. And we could explain why it was that way. This is what we're gonna think about in our psalm today. This one simple, straightforward command to worship the Lord with joyful song, 
We're to sing out his praises. We're to worship him for what he's done, his marvelous things in saving us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're to see that we're to sing his praises because one day he's returning to this earth to judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. And that gives us hope. And so we sing with joy as God's people. Follow along as I read Psalm 98. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre and with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The psalm, it, it, it divides itself rather neatly and nicely into three sections. You can see that. We have the help from our translators. You have a, a line break, a space break there between uh, verses 3 and 4 and verses 6 and 7. So you have three distinct sections here. Uh, but what really should stand out to you is just this single command to worship the Lord with joy to sing his praises. There's nothing else in here. There's, there's no conversation about holy living or a rebuke for sin, no correction. There's no contrast between true worship and false worship. Though I think it's implied there, but it's just this single focus on what God's people are to do in worship to him. Singularly devoted to praising Jesus Christ as the one who saves and the one that is returning to judge the world. And I also want you to notice how the, the, the audience and how the, the worshipers are ever expanding. So it begins by addressing its attention to the house of Israel there in verse 3. And then in verse 4, it calls to make a joyful noise all the earth, and that being the peoples of the earth as it's expanding out to the nations. And then in verses 7 through 8, you see that it expands to all of creation. And so the worship is ever expanding to their God and their creator king. Well, what I want us to do today is to, to notice three things about God's people and their worship of the Lord. Three things about God's people and their worship of the Lord. First, they joyfully worship the Lord for his salvation. Second, they invite the nations to join their worship. And third, they anticipate the worshipful return of the Lord. So first we want to see that God's people joyfully worship the Lord for his salvation. This is what you see in verses one through three. And in verse one, it begins with that command, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. This instruction, it, it sets the stage for the entire song. 
All these other commands that follow, they proceed from this simple instruction to sing to the Lord. So it says in verses four through six, make a joyful noise, break forth in a joyous song and sing praises, sing praises, make a joyful noise. Verses seven and eight, let the sea roar, let the rivers clap and the hills sing for joy. That's a joyous occasion. It's something to celebrate what God has done. And it begins with God's people singing to the Lord. Now, when it says sing a new song, it's not as though he's saying, I need you to go and and think of something new to say about the Lord that we've not said before. Come up with some new content. Take a a retreat and, and write a new song. That's not what he's saying. Rather, it's just simply saying that this is a sing a song of a fresh experience of God's work in your life. The content's the same. So Moses records, it's recorded in Exodus for us in Exodus 15 that Moses sang as the people were delivered from Egypt in the Exodus. And the content that you find there is, is very similar to what you find here. In Exodus 15, 6, it says that your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemies. Oh, it's by God's right hand, his powerful hand that Israel was saved from their bondage in Egypt. And the same is, is true in this song here. But the, the, the command there is simple and straightforward. And brothers and sisters, we have a responsibility to gather and to sing God's praises. It's a wonderful responsibility. It is a good gift to be able to do this. He wants us to worship him through singing, through songs of praise, through music. It pleases the Lord. Paul tells the, the Christians in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Like a balloon that is full of water and it's about to explode, so our hearts ought to be full of thankfulness to God, and they burst forth in singing songs of praises to the Lord for what he's done. That's what drives our singing. The thing about COVID-19 that is, there are many things that are terrible about it, but as a congregation, it's just put this, this painful dampening on our corporate singing. Having to be spread out the way we are, having to be in different rooms, recognizing that, it, that probably half of the congregation is at, is at home, we're having to sing in masks, it just, it dulls the joy of wanting to come together in this one room to sing God's praises. And we recognize that one day that's going to end. One day we will all be back in here. I don't know when it's going to be, but I trust that the Lord's going to give us that day. But until then, we still have a responsibility to sing and to sing out to the Lord without fear, to sing his praises to him. That's what we do. Swinging and singing is a, a sweet responsibility, and it's a wonderful gift to the church. And just think about in your own life how God has used at some moment, maybe some unexpected moment, singing with God's people just to, to build you up, to strengthen your faith, to remove some fear or anxiety, to calm you in some way, 
to remove a distraction that was on your mind, that your, your heart is just drawn into the truth of the gospel that you've been singing about, and that's how God builds up his congregation, is through the singing. He, he, does, he does it through other things. He does it through the preaching of the word, obviously. That's the, the fountainhead from which everything else in the life, the church of the life, the life of the church springs forth, including our singing. But there is something unique about God's people singing. And no pun intended, but it, it strikes a different spiritual chord in our hearts and in our minds when we can have music accompany the truth and the lyrics of the gospel that we sing. So church family, sing. Sing out heartily. Sing out joyfully. John Wesley, he wrote, sing lustily and with good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. Do you ever feel that? Kind of half dead or half asleep and you know you need to be singing, but you're really struggling. Take courage. Don't sing that way. Pray that God would give you the strength that you would not be half dead or half asleep in your singing. And then he says, be no more afraid of your voice now or no more ashamed of it of being heard. How many of you hold back because you're fearful of what the other person in front of you is going to hear when you sing out? Don't be ashamed of it. Don't be afraid of it. One of the things that I'm going to miss about Johnny being in that second row was sitting right in front of him and him singing out loudly for all to hear, unashamed and unafraid. What an amazing example. We may not have been able to understand what he said, but we could hear him and we could see him and we saw the joy. It was an amazing example. So church family, sing out God's praises with great joy. Verse 1 summarizes also why we sing. It says, for he has done marvelous things. We don't marvel at much anymore. You know, often we have to kind of go away from the city, go out on vacation, shut everything down to begin to look at things and marvel at something. It's not often that we're just going about daily business and we're stopped and something spectacular, something just takes our attention and we begin to marvel at it. Singing helps us do that. It helps us marvel at what the Lord has done. It makes us marvel at his supernatural work, his miraculous work in our lives. And so in these verses, marvelous things is to be understood as God's salvation. What he has done in saving his people from their enemies in the Old Testament and ultimately from sin and death in our lives and in all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. That's the marvelous thing that we're to behold and to sing about. There are a number of things that we learn about salvation from these verses. We see it's the Lord's work. It's not ours. All of these verses have the Lord as the subject. He's the one doing the work. It can, it can never say, well, well, Brad did this. Or Kevin did this. Or Ben did this. Or Amy did this. You can never say that. It's always the Lord did these marvelous things. We have no power in ourselves. We contribute to nothing. We, just like Israel, are the beneficiaries of what God has done. We also see that it's a powerful work. 
It says that his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation. Uh, this is metaphorical language to describe God's divine power that saved his people. Israel did not have the power in themselves. It's why when Moses led them out of Egypt, he says, it is your right hand, your glorious hand that has done this because they didn't have the power to deliver themselves. It took divine supernatural power for God to save his people. Salvation is something the Lord has revealed. It says in verse two, he has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness. God wanted the world. He wanted the nations to know that he is God, that he is righteous, and that he, is he alone has the power to save. And so he revealed this. He disclosed it for all to see and to know. And then we see that salvation is undeserved. Verse 3, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness. I love how Chad last week when preaching through Psalm 78 talked about what it looked like for we as, as depraved people not to remember the Lord. He said, when we don't remember the Lord, we willfully disregard the Lord. We reject the Lord. We try to put him outside of our minds and pretend as though he doesn't exist. But when the Lord remembers his steadfast love and faithfulness, he has regard for his people. He moves and he acts upon his promises that he made to his people, to save his people, to be faithful to them to love them, to care for them, to show mercy and grace for them, and they've done nothing to deserve it. They rejected him. But when he remembers, he acts and moves towards his people. Brothers and sisters, this is why we sing. It is to marvel at how our salvation is God's powerful work to undeserving and yet beloved sinners like you and me. That's why we sing. God saving you from death is a marvelous thing and it makes him eternally worthy of all glory, of all praise. It is a miraculous thing that he has done, bringing us from death to life, saving us from our sin and condemnation and giving us life in Jesus Christ. Dead people do not have the power to save themselves. A number of years ago, I, uh, I officiated and was the pallbearer in my wife's grandmother's service. She died in her, her mid-90s. She was a, uh, a sweet, godly woman. She was of small frame. And to understand the funeral setting, you have to understand my wife is basically from no man's land, Kentucky, a very small town of just a little over 1,000 people uh, in, in the middle of, of Kentucky. And when we get to the burial, normally at the graveside service, you have the tent set up where the plot is. And we get there, and I get out of the car, and the funeral home director comes up to me and says, hey, when this is over, I need you and the pallbearers to stay around and help us out for a second. And I see that there's a tent there, but the grave is another 20 yards away. I'm like, what's going on? And there's no hoist. Normally you set the coffin on the hoist and it lowers it down into the grave and come to find out that there was a little problem in digging the grave. They hit another coffin. 
Now, if you're at Arlington Cemetery in Sandy Springs, this would be a problem. If you're in no man's land, Kentucky, it's not a problem. You just basically move over a little bit until you got enough space and you put, have a, a place to put another coffin. So we do the graveside and we, the pallbearers, have to take the coffin over to the grave and lower it in. And by lower it in, we quite literally have to get into the grave and pass the coffin down and set it into the grave. And then once that is all done, and it is hot, we are sweating. It was in the middle of summer. And um, at this point, it is a bit comical. But I just remember thinking, this is a very small, frail lady that died at 95. And it took six or eight of us to lower her into the grave. Dead people have no power at all in them. And when we are spiritually dead, we are dead. And there is no power in us to save ourselves at all. It takes divine, miraculous power. And that's what God had, has, and that's what he did to save you. Think about that moment that the gospel was revealed to you and you truly understood you realize in that moment where you understood the gospel and you come to know salvation, it's not simply that you know about it. You come to know God himself. It is a relational knowledge that you have to, be, to now be reconciled to him, not to be enemies, but to be friends with him. The late J.I. Packer wrote in his famous book, Knowing God, what makes life worthwhile is having a big enough objective something which catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And this the Christian has in a way that no other person has. For what higher, more exalted, and more compelling goal can there be than to know God? When God reveals his salvation and makes it known to, our, to us in our hearts, we come to know him personally, intimately. It says that he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness. Every Christian at some point asks the question, why me? We sang it. We sang it this morning, didn't we? Why me? Why was I saved from that eternal fate of damnation? No other reason but because of God's love shown to us in Jesus Christ. This past week at Johnny's funeral, I had the privilege of reading these verses from Ephesians 5, 1 through 6. In love, this is what God did. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. When God remembered his love, he acted to save us. Those whom he loves in Christ, he saves in Christ. And so brothers and sisters, let us joyfully sing God's praises for the salvation he has shown us in Jesus Christ. Second, God's people, they invite the nations to join their worship. They invite the nations to join their worship. Look again at verse 4. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre and with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. The psalmist, he now invites the earth to join in 
praising the Lord. And by earth, he means the peoples of the earth, the other nations. So in verse 2, it says that he has revealed his righteousness to the nations. And then he bookends that section in verse 3 by saying, All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So he's made known his salvation. He's revealed it to the nations, to the peoples of the earth. And now in turn, he's calling them to join in their worship. They were the watching audience of what God had done for the house of Israel. God disclosed Israel's salvation because his plan has always been that the nations would come to worship him through Jesus Christ. That's not just a New Testament plan. It's always been God's plan. So he promised Abraham that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through him and through his offspring. Uh, Centuries later after that promise, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he told them the purpose for which he did this was to make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Why were they to be that way? Well, they were supposed to live in such a way before the watching nations so that those nations might know that Israel's God is the true God and that he is holy and he is righteous. The way Israel lived was to show that to the watching world. But Israel failed. Just time and time again they failed. Their example was like a soap opera. It's just all all the lying and cheating and adultery and idolatry and just utter wickedness and it was just running rampant through their, the people until eventually it gets to the point that Israel they're really no different than the pagan nations to say Israel was eventually got to the point where they were a, a byword for sin for lawlessness so as you go throughout the Old Testament and you you begin to wonder well how in the world is this going to happen how is it that a holy God is going to forgive sinners like Israel and like these pagan nations and their idolatry? How is he going to forgive them and welcome anyone in as a holy worshiper of him? How's that going to happen? Well, the answer is is not through Israel, but through one who comes from Israel. So the prophet Isaiah, centuries later, he tells of one that comes from Israel that's going to be a king and going to be a servant. And his sole purpose is to make unrighteous sinners from all nations holy worshipers of the Lord. So turn over briefly to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52, just a a few pages to the right in your Bible. Isaiah 52, verses 13 through chapter 53, verse 12 are some of the most well-known verses in Isaiah. We're not going to look at all of them, but look at, look at chapter 52, verse 13. And again, we're thinking about how can a holy God forgive sinners and make them righteous worshipers of him. And it's not going to be through Israel, but it's going to be one that comes from Israel, a servant and a king Chapter 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. In verse 15, So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. 
For that which has been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. And so what we see here is this servant is high, he's exalted, he will shut the mouths of kings from other nations, and that he will sprinkle many nations. The language here is alluding to the ceremonial sprinkling of water on the people to make them clean in order for them to be admitted into worship uh, in the temple. And it says that the servant will do this, and he'll do this for the nations. We also see that the nations, those who did not have the Jewish Old Testament message, it says that they will come to see and to hear and to understand and eventually to believe this message of the servant. But how is this going to happen? How are they going to be sprinkled clean? How is it that they're going to come to understand and believe this message? Look at chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he, speaking of the servant, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then look down at verse 10 through 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. There's so much that could be said about these passages, but the point is very simple. The servant dies for the people. The servant bears God's wrath for guilty sinners. He becomes the punishment. He is the guilt offering for the people's sins. And you just see it over and over that the people and the servant are substituted for one another. They sin, he is smitten by God. They get peace when he is chastised. They go astray and he is treated as guilty. So the punishment for their sin is paid, but it's not paid by them, it's paid by the servant. And this is God's plan to crush him. It was the Lord's will to do this. That's how the people are cleansed, by the guilt offering that the servant paid, the sacrifice of his blood that is sprinkled upon them. And they, in turn, are treated as perfect, holy worshipers. Did you notice that down in verse 11? That he makes many to be accounted righteous. Their sin is paid. Their sins are forgiven. They are counted righteous and can be admitted as holy worshipers before the Lord. Fast forward centuries later after the close of the Old Testament, after Jesus' life and ministry on this earth is over, after his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven and the disciples, the apostles are going about proclaiming the gospel to the nations and there is a non-Jewish man from Ethiopia traveling to Jerusalem and he has a copy of these scriptures and he's reading it 
And he reads the verses that we didn't read where it says, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And as this man from Ethiopia is reading this, he, he doesn't understand what's happening. He, he, he doesn't fully comprehend. And there's a follower of Jesus there with him. His name is Philip. And so he, he turns to Philip and he says, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And the disciple of Jesus, Philip, says this. It says that he opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, told him the good news about Jesus. This man from another nation that's reading about a lamb, that's reading about a servant that bears the iniquities of God's people and that sprinkles the nation, wants to know, who is this about? And he says, this is good news about Jesus Christ. And you can now turn from your sins and trust in him and in turn be made a holy, righteous worshiper of the Lord. And that's what he did. He says, I want to follow him. He's baptized. He declares that Jesus is, that he, that Jesus is Lord, that he is the Messiah, and that he is the one that has died, bearing the wrath of God for the forgiveness of his sins, so that he might be made a holy, righteous worshiper of the Lord. And he was from Ethiopia. He was a Gentile from a foreign nation. My non-Christian friend that's here today, that may be watching online, I want you to understand that Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead was to make people like you and me, rebellious sinners, worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know what you've been taught about Jesus, but if you've been taught anything less than that, it is a lie. You've been sold a false, a false bill of goods and do not buy it. Eternal worship of the true God is the loftiest goal you can have for your life. And I invite you to do what the psalmist is doing, to turn from your sins, to trust in Jesus Christ, and to make a joyful noise of praise to him. I'd love to talk to you about that. I'll be available after the service, but I invite you to do that today. Do not delay in doing it. Church family, just to turn our attention here to something else, uh, one of the things that excites me most about the, the, the possibility of sending the Brannans to the UAE is to see your unreserved support of them in doing this. I've yet to hear of anyone uh, express any type of concerns or criticisms, but, but sadness because you realize we could be sending off a couple that is well-known, that's loved, that has a very fruitful ministry in our church of leadership, of discipleship, and, and all the rest. But you're willing to do this, one, because you just recognize the Lord's going to provide everything that we need as a church. This church is not built on the life or ministry of one individual or one family. But more importantly, you recognize that the nations need people like this. The nations need people that are willing to go faithfully proclaim the gospel and make disciples so that they might sing joyful praises. And in the UAE, you have people coming from all parts of the world and parts of the world that we cannot get into as Americans and especially as American missionaries. But they go to the UAE. In turn, they hear about Jesus Christ. They're saved. They worship him. And many of them go back to their home country to take the good news of this gospel. 
And so praise God if we can have any small part in doing this. The Lord is kind to us in this way. I want to make a, just a brief word about singing and the atmosphere of singing. It's clear that Psalm 98 is a joyful celebration and there's, there are instruments and there is music that accompanies the singing and I want to make a couple of pastoral comments. First, worship in heaven will be composed of musical expressions from all nations and not just our personal preferences. It will be composed of musical expressions from all nations and not just our personal preferences. God has made all of us differently and it is to his glory that we are all made differently. And we all have different musical expressions. And in a congregation with members from the age of 18 up to 98, that is very much the case. And there's nothing wrong with our musical preferences. As a church, it becomes a problem when we decide to divide the congregation over these preferences. And at Mount Vernon, we've intentionally chose not to do that, which means that no one is going to be happy all the time. And that's okay, because it also means that everyone's going to be happy some of the time in the things that we sing and, and in how we sing them. But more importantly, heaven's worship will be comprised of people from all nations. And its music will be as diverse and as creative as those people that God has ransomed from all nations. And it will be a joyous thing. I do not know what it will be like, but it will be a joyous occasion and celebration. It will not be said that it is too much, that it's too exuberant to tone it down a little bit. It's going to be a joyous celebration. Second, joy in corporate worship is found in pursuing Christ. It's found in pursuing Christ, not in pursuing joy. I don't discount the importance and value of music and its effect on our singing. I am thankful for it. That's part of the beauty of music with its different keys and octaves and harmonies and tones. They set a mood. They, they, they help invigorate our, our singing. They help move the lyrics alone in its proper manner and form. And it's a beautiful thing. But Paul says we sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And that joy and that thankfulness in our singing is not found in pursuing joy alone, but it's in focusing on the gospel of Jesus Christ. One pastor and author, Aaron Minikoff, very helpfully wrote in his book, and I'm dead serious, this is a very wonderful quote. Joy is not the absence of sorrow. To assert that joy is the absence of sorrow trivializes our pain, and more importantly, misreads the Bible. Joy and sadness, they often mix. And it's true in our corporate worship. There's joy and sadness happening at the same time because of the sufferings and trials that you have in your life. And yet you're by faith reaching out to Jesus Christ, asking for hope and asking for joy. But he goes on to say, joy is delightful confidence in the triune God who orchestrated, accomplished, and applied our salvation Joy is an inward affection that finds an outward expression in praise and adoration and song. Joy is an inward affection that finds an outward expression in praise and adoration and song. And so if you struggle to find 
joy in singing. Don't be ashamed of the sadness and sorrow and the suffering that may be present in your life. Be honest about it. But you don't come here and pursue joy for the sake of joy. You come here and pursue Christ. You pursue the gospel. You focus your hearts and minds on that. And in turn, there is joy. God, by his spirit, gives us joy. So we as God's people, we invite the nations to join in this joyful worship. Third, lastly, and briefly, we as God's people anticipate the joyful worship, or rather the worshipful return of the Lord. We anticipate the worshipful return of the Lord. Verses 7 through 9 again, back in Psalm 98. It says, let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. In these verses, the the worship expands to its fullest. Everything is encompassed. All of creation, all that fills the seas, all that fills the earth, all that's in the hills, all that's in the earth. Let them all join in worshiping the Lord. Let the sea roar, the rivers clap, the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. The psalmist envisions a day when everything is made right. And I don't know what this is going to look like, but it's going to be joyous. Everything is restored to its rightful relationship. Rightful relationship to God and rightful relationship to one another. This isn't the way our relationship with the earth is today. Rebellious human beings see the earth as the theater by which they can carry out their disobedience to God. The ground that's intended to produce fruit, that's intended to produce and give us life so that we might live a life that honors the Lord becomes a sponge for bloodshed. The, the night that is intended to give us rest that, that says we are finite, that we need to rest. And in rest, then we trust our creator, God, who is infinite, who never sleeps, who's always watching over his creation, always watching over his people. That night becomes the cover of lawlessness and disobedience. And one day this is going to end. One day, all things are going to be made right, and nature will reverberate the praises of God's people in anticipation of Jesus Christ coming, not to save at that point, but to judge the world in righteousness. Verse 9, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. It's joyful anticipation because we know that the king will come and establish his dominion over the entire earth. There will be universal peace. Righteousness and happiness will reign everywhere. Justice everywhere when Jesus returns. And when he does, no one on that day can say it's unfair, that it's unjust, that it wasn't equitable because it's going to be a perfect judgment because the judgment, the standard by which people are judged is the king's law, which is perfect. And it's perfect because the king himself is perfect. So no one can stand up before the judge and say that was an unjust sentence. It was not fair. It can never be said of King Jesus' judgment over the world. Paul told a group of spiritual people in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, that 
that God has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God has appointed a day, or appointed a man to come one day and to judge the world in righteousness. You know that day is going to come because that man has been raised from the dead. And we know that man to be Jesus Christ. That's the assurance we have that this is going to happen. Christ has been raised from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is waiting for his Father to tell him, go. Now the time has come. I want to conclude with just a couple of points. First, thinking about our gathering and worshiping the Lord in light of the Lord judging, pray for pure motives when we gather for worship. Pray that we would have pure motives when we gather for worship. Paul said that there's coming a day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. None of us are perfect. None of us will, this side of heaven, worship perfectly. When we gather, there's always a mixture of of pure motives, of honest motives, of righteousness, and sin present in our lives. That's just the way it is, this sign of heaven. But don't be deceived. God knows what's in your heart. God knows what's going on in your life and in your mind when you gather for worship. Others may not, but God knows and God sees. I've been in ministry for nearly 20 years, and I have seen... Plenty of people in my day, sadly, gather regularly and what you would say faithfully to worship the Lord, only for it to eventually be revealed publicly that their hearts were far from the Lord as they lived in disobedience and they didn't hear the call to turn from their sins as they abandoned the faith, whatever it may be. So pray for pure hearts, clean motives as we gather to worship. Pray for these things on Sunday morning. Second and lastly, set your hope on a righteousness that is greater than any earthly institution can establish. Set your hope on a righteousness that is greater than any earthly institution can establish. I agree with Aaron's sentiment from a few weeks ago, I think he, he made it, that now more than ever, I want good leadership. I want it in our, in our city, in our community, in our state, in our nation. We, we want good leaders with so much going on in the world. I want one with upright character that doesn't celebrate immorality. I want one with true conviction that is not personally or politically expedient. I want one with bold courage that doesn't pander to a particular group or virtue signal. I want institutions that own up to their past wrongs and take steps to rectify them for everyone, regardless of their race, gender, age, or social status. And I assume that you want the same thing. I know that we don't all agree on what it ought to look like, but as a church full of Christians, I assume we want many of these same things. But as Christians, and as a local congregation that have the name of Jesus Christ, we sell ourselves short and we do injustice to the true hope that the Bible presents if we think that this world only needs better leaders 
and better institutions. We sell ourselves short of true biblical hope if we think that's all this world needs. They never have and they never will establish the righteousness that the world truly needs. Our lives as Christians were saved for another kingdom. Our confidence is in a greater king. And our hope is in that simple phrase there in verse 9. For he comes. He comes. And when he does, he will establish perfect righteousness on this earth. And until that day comes, we hope, we pray, and we look forward by faith. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are a good, gracious, sovereign, loving Heavenly Father. You have saved us through your Son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place. You have raised him from the dead so that we might be made righteous and, and made holy worshipers of you. Our Father, we confess that we do not sing and we do not worship you as we want to at times and as we're called to. We ask that you would forgive us. And Father, help us in our worship of you. Help us to exalt the name of Jesus Christ and help us to find our only hope knowing that he is going to return one day to perfectly establish righteousness on this earth. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.